I hope you're still in Hebrews chapter 12. I hope you're still in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be uh, finishing up this particular chapter and gearing up for uh, the very last chapter of Hebrews. Hopefully, Lord willing, next week we'll be going through all of chapter number 13. Uh, But we've been in this study for quite some time. Uh, And I think really all of what the writer is trying to say is sort of for us right here, recorded for us in chapter number 12 in a lot of ways. He's been encouraging the Hebrew believers to, uh, to persevere, to endure in the faith. And really, that's sort of the theme of this particular chapter, this idea of endurance, this idea of perseverance. It starts right at the very beginning where he tells them what? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us looking to Jesus. This is the direction that he has from. This is the mindset. The the thing that he wants all of their attention to be given to is this Jesus that he has everywhere been trying to explain. As is the theme of our series. He's better. Jesus is better. And he continues by encouraging them to endure, yes, endure even through discipline. Verse number 7 of chapter 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And again, he's writing to this church who was feeling the effects of the moment. Their time in history was fraught with dissension and distress and violence and chaos and confusion. It would be very difficult under those circumstances to, uh, to, pers- to persevere, to endure. This was, as he says in verse number 11, it was a, a painful rather than a pleasant moment for them. You see, I think, what he's trying to get at as we've spent some time sort of explaining is that just because we believe in Jesus doesn't mean the problems go away. It doesn't mean the circumstances necessarily always get easier to manage. But it does mean you have something to look to, to cling to, that doesn't change when everything else does. There was strength to be had. There was grace to be had in abundance so long as Christ was considered. That's the key part, right? As he says in verse 2, again, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The hope for this church, but also I would say the hope for anyone who's suffering, anyone who's struggling. For those who could be described as barely hanging on, they're getting by by the skin of their teeth. The hope for those is the Christ who endured for them. That's where all of this perseverance lies. That's where all of this endurance comes from. Our perseverance for him proceeds out of his for us. And no matter how shaky things might get for the church, no matter how tenuous might things, things might get for those who are looking unto Jesus, that word and that work of Jesus is sure. 
That's what he's been trying. I think that's what the writer has been trying to explain in all of these different ways. And it culminates actually back in chapter 6 where he says that Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor. It's the thing that cannot be moved. It cannot be changed. It cannot be diluted. And this is why he summons them. Run after him. Look to him. Let everything else go except for him. He is the fixed point. The immovable truth. That we look to in a world that's filled with instability. And again, all of this encouragement comes to a group of believers that were enduring a time in which it would have been probably convenient to let go. It would have been easy. The easier option would be to to remove themselves out of the body, to, to take themselves out of the faith and just go on their merry way. That would be a little bit easier of a decision. The threat of persecution, and not just persecution, but death, was hanging over them like a cloud everywhere, all the time almost. It was a constant threat. And no wonder their outlook, no wonder their perspective on the future looks so grim and looks so shaky. But interestingly enough... As the writer is telling them to hold fast. It's that theme that's repeated about four times throughout this letter. He tells them, hold fast. As he's telling them that, the writer is here going to suggest that things are about to get just a little bit shakier. Things are about to get a little bit more troublesome. Look at verse 25 again. He says, see... That you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Interestingly, I love looking at this little section from this perspective. Because it almost appears as if the writer is taking on the position of one of those Old Testament prophets. Where he's announcing this message that he's received from on high. And this message is so significant, it should not be refused. Don't miss this, he's essentially saying. Don't miss what I have to relay to you. It cannot and should not be refused. It's an indication that his message is one of absolute importance. Again, not because it's his. It's because it's God. When he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about Christ himself who is speaking through word and through spirit. And he's saying, don't resist the message that he's been trying to get at you with. These words are words they should take to heart, not because they're this writer's, it's because they're divine. As he says, this message is a warning from heaven. This writer might have been the mouthpiece of this sermon, if we will, but he was not the author of it. Of course, that's reserved, that's a role reserved for Jesus the Son. And I think clearly, at least in my mind, this little phrase, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking, hearkens us all the way back to the very opening verses of the whole book of Hebrews. Which, as the writer says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's the one, as the writer has everywhere tried to get them to see. 
He's the one who's speaking. God, he said, spoke to us through the work and word of his only begotten son. And here he's saying he's still speaking. He's still speaking to us through that same word, through that same spirit of Christ. And what's God saying? That's a question we should ask. What's God saying to us when he is speaking to us through his son? What's the message he wants us to hear? I think if he were to sum it up, it would be something like this. That God's message to us is all about how sinners, no matter how filthy, no matter how much they fail, no matter what kind of background they have, can be brought into a right standing with God because of the never-ending priesthood of the Son of God. That's essentially what he's been talking about this whole time. The priesthood of Jesus is what makes us right with the Father. And we who believe in that representation, that we who believe that the priest has become the sacrifice, that that is what allows us to be forgiven of our sins. That's what brings us into right standing with God. And your right standing is maintained Not by you, but by Christ, who is still standing on your behalf. That awesome verse that I haven't been able to shake at the end of chapter 7, where it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he's always making intercession for them. Your priest is still standing. And that's what gives us hope. That's what gives us so much confidence. And it's only that right standing with God that steadies us. When all else appears unstable, when all else appears as if it's changing, as if it's going to hell in a handbasket, what steadies us is the work of Christ that cannot be changed. It cannot be dented. It cannot be altered. And that's very important. Because as he says in verse 26, there's coming a time when that is going to appear very shaky. Because the world is going to shake. Again, look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may Remain. He's quoting, if you know, he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet of Haggai. Which, again, I think owes to this idea that in these verses, the writer of Hebrews is almost sort of taking on the role of a prophet. He's quoting from Haggai. Where Haggai is, is, alludes to this coming day. A day in the future. A day that is, that is coming for all of earth and heaven. When all of earth and heaven, all of creation will be made to shake. Will be trembled. Actually, go with me if you can find Haggai. Go to Matthew and then just go back left a couple of pages. Malachi and then go backwards again to Zechariah and then go backwards and then you'll find Haggai. Go to Haggai in chapter number two. I want you to see uh, these words as they originally appeared in the Old Testament prophets. Haggai chapter two and look at verse number six. The prophet says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. 
of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of, the Jew, of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Everyone by the sword of his brother. What is he alluding to? Well, clearly it's a... I would say both a literal and also I would say figurative day in which all of earth's powers, all of its people of influence, all of its pillars of security and cultural progress, all of those things, all of the things that this world holds dear and upholds on pedestals, they will be rocked to their core. They will be stirred up and made to tremble. They will be shaken they will be shaken off of their moorings. Everything that we've, that, that we've seen and, and come to believe that would be so steady and so certain will be exposed on that day for being nothing but something that is frail and fickle and fragile. It won't be anything that's lasting. And the only things that will remain will be the things that cannot be shaken. As the writer of Hebrews says, You see, there's this day that's coming when all of these things, it's almost as if the Lord is going to take a sifting pan and he's going to dip it and he's going to sift all of the cosmos. Resulting in only what he has chosen to remain. Both Haggai and the the writer of Hebrews say that that's what's going to come on the earth. They both have that same message. And again, I think it's a forward-looking message. A forward-looking message both for Haggai and the writer of Hebrews. A day that is still yet even coming in our own day. And I think the point of both chapters, Haggai 2, Haggai chapter 2, and Hebrews chapter 12, the point of both is to ask this question. Will you be among the unshaken things? Or will you be a part of those things which are shaken and unsettled? And how can you know which one you belong to? At least those are the questions I came up with as I was reading both of these sections. How can you know that you belong to the unshaken things? Because that's the blunt fact. There's coming a day and perhaps you feel it. You feel it in our present moment of where we are in this life. It feels like things are shaking feels like things are becoming tenuous. They're becoming troublesome. It feels like there's always these rumors of turmoil and struggle and scandal and corruption. and vi- you, you hear all of these things all the time from all of these different outlets. It feels like things are being shaken. How can you know that you belong to the unshaken things? It's a very important question, I think, because there's coming a day when all of this is going to be thrown into chaos, into commotion. How should we prepare for that? Can we prepare for that? Haggai, I think, gives us a clue. He says in verse number four, if you're still there, Haggai 2, look at verse four. Notice what he says. Love these words. Yet now be strong, 
O Zerubbabel, governor, or declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Look at verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declared the Lord and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You want to talk about comfort? You want to talk about security? The people of God, yes, when everything was appearing to be quaking and crumbling all around them, what is their word? What is the word that they cling to? That Jehovah has chosen them. And no matter how things might seem, no matter how shaky things get, nothing can dislodge that. No wonder why he says, be strong and fear not. Repeating that often reiterated promise throughout scripture. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Take strength in the word of the Lord. So that begs the question. Both for uh, out of Hebrews and out of this prophecy. How can we approach that day, that day of shaking, without fear? How can we look forward to when all of the things of earth and heaven will be made to be put into commotion? How can we, without worry, without trembling, without fear, approach that coming day of the Lord when all of these things will be thrown into chaos and know that we will not be shaken no matter how shaky things get, we will be settled? How can we know that? Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, the difference comes down to whether your faith is found at Sinai or whether it's found at Zion. And that may be a weird thing to contrast, but that's the contrast that he sets up. If you can, go back to Hebrews 12. And notice the verses prior to the verses we read earlier. Look at verse number 18. Because here the writer is going to set up this contrast, a really informative one. Between the events at Mount Sinai and what's given to us through the person and work of Christ. Essentially, as he says in verse 18, notice those words. For you have not come. And then look at verse 22 where he says, but you have come. He's setting up this contrast between what they do not have in the hope of the gospel and what they do have. You don't belong to this, but you do belong to this. And this is what is going to give you certainty and peace and security. The events at Mount Sinai were, of course, some of the most well-known in all of Israel's history. And I think very easily this church would have been familiar with that episode. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
Very clearly, I think the writer has Exodus in mind when he's recalling these scenes at Sinai. And he's especially recalling those moments when the holiness of God filled the horizon like a thick cloud, it says. Actually, go with me. Go with me to the book of Exodus. I want you to see uh, this section that I think the writer is clearly recalling. Look at Exodus chapter number 19. This is that moment that he's referring to. The exodus has occurred. The people of Israel have been ushered out of Egyptian bondage and slavery. And they've come now to find themselves in camps in the, in the hill country of Sinai. They've crossed the Red Sea and all of that. They've been delivered both out of Egypt and out of the hands of the Egyptians when they crossed the Red Sea. And now they're brought here. And this is where God is going to covenant with them and make them his people in a very formal way, in a very, uh, very demonstrable fashion. He's going to tell them that they are his. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And they're told later, in just a couple of verses after that, they're told to, Moses is told to get the people ready. Because in three days, hence, there's going to, God himself, Yahweh, is going to descend out of heaven uh, and plant his feet on Mount Sinai. And there he's going to establish his covenantal relationship with his people. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. It's an amazingly vivid scene, is it not? With all of this thunder and lightning and a thick cloud of smoke that descends. And this, of course, is that very momentous occasion where God gives his law to his people. And what is the law? It's a, the law, at its heart, is nothing but sort of, we could say, the revelation of God's holiness. It's sort of the details of how righteous God is. That's what the law is meant to unfold. And all of those succeeding chapters in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What are, we, what are we greeted by? Not just a checklist. Not a things of things for people to do. What we are seeing is the infinite holiness of Jehovah unfolded in front of us. That's all of those regulations. That's all of those stipulations. That's what, they, that's what they make up. They are basically sort of an example of this is how holy Yahweh is. 
You see, this is the basis of God's relationship with the people of Israel. It's rooted in what fact? It's rooted in the fact that they are not holy and God is perfectly holy. And God cannot be approached by stinking, filthy, unholy sinners. If anyone dared, again, if you remember our text, and if anyone dared to even touch the Mount of Sinai, they would die. Exodus chapter 19, look at verse 11. It says, and be ready for the third day. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. This is what God's holiness looks like. It is so infringingly holy. It cannot even be touched by unholiness. And you see, this is where we get the idea of the law. The law of what? It establishes the only way, the only God-approved way that people can approach him. That's why you have all of these sacrifices and washings and cleansing and offerings. It is the way in which unholy people can approach a holy God. Why? Because God desires relationship with those people. This is how you will commune with me. This is how I will be worshipped. That's what Sinai is. It's a place where that is revealed to us. That is unfolded in front of us. Sinai is the place of law. It's the place of God's inflexible requirement. Which is what? Be holy for I am holy. That's the summation of the law. And in the face of that requirement, what do the people do? As our text says... Back in Hebrews 12, 19, it says what? And the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They can't take it. There's so much holiness being put in front of them that they can't even withstand the message of how inflexible it is. Look at Exodus 19, or excuse me, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. The same thing is repeated. Exodus 20, 19. And uh, you speak to us and we, uh, this is the people of God. They're trembling. They're standing afar off because of all of the, the mountain and it's shaking and it's smoking. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. They feel the weight of this. The weight of this covenant is a law that is perfect and it demands perfection. And the announcement of that law left them trembling and left them quaking. And as our text says, even Moses himself was terrified. Hebrews 12, 21, indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You see, Sinai is the place of law. And this is what God's holy law always does. It should always make anyone who dares to stand in front of it, to tremble and shake, to get weak in the knees. Because no one can endure what it requires. No one can endure the requirements of the law. No one can fill its demands. No one can keep it fully. No wonder why the people were so fierce, so fearing all of these words of law. They knew that they could not keep it. 
And yet, I think what's so interesting is that we think that we can. What's so fascinating about the law of God is like, is that we like to think that we can do it ourselves. And just like the Israelites, we are often caught taking matters into our own hands. We are caught thinking, uh, we don't need him, we don't need God to tell us what to do, we don't need God to tell us how to approach him. We can make our own way, we can be our own saviors. Whenever you think that God's law is keepable by you and by your performance, that's what you're saying. You're saying that I don't need God to tell me how to do things, I can do, go and do my own way. And you see, this is, a, so, this is exactly what happens in Sinai. This is exactly what happens in Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf. It's the people of God choosing that they can make their own way instead of listening to the words of the Father. The debacle of the golden calf is just that. It's man taking matters into his own hands, thinking that he can make himself in a right standing with God on his own terms. It's once again... The repeated pattern of man thinking that he can be like God. And the point is this. If we are not left terrified and trembling at the severity of God's holy law, then we haven't heard it in its fullest extent. If you do not read the law of God and come away with just getting on your knees and crying and trembling and quaking because that's how severe God's holiness is, you haven't heard the law rightly. Because God's law, which reveals His holiness, is meant to do, is meant to expose our utter inability to endure what it says. That's what it's meant to expose. That you can't do it. That you can't live up to it. The scene here at Mount Sinai is an unmistakable reminder that this holiness of God is infinitely beyond us. It's out of our reach. It's out of our grasp. We cannot attain it. No one can ever pull it off. And yet I fear that there are countless churchgoers who are staking their faith basically at the foot of Sinai and saying, we can do it ourselves. We don't need anything that what Jesus has to say. We can go our own way. Don't worry about it, God. I got this. That's essentially what you're doing. If you say that your hope of redemption comes from what you do, from your own works, if you're clinging to what you do, to who you are, to the things that you would say, look at how spiritual, if you believe that you can punch your ticket to heaven by keeping God's law in your own ability by doing enough things, you've missed the point of the law. You don't know what holiness is. The law was not meant to be a checklist by which we can make ourselves holy. The law was meant to show us just how unholy we actually are. Paul is going to make this argument so well in the book of Romans. 
But essentially the writer is is pointing them here. He's pointing them back to Sinai. That place where holy law descended. And the people quaked and trembled at the sight of that shaking, consuming holiness of God. If your faith is based there. If you're you're pitching your faith like a tent at the foot of Mount Sinai, you will not be able to endure when God's consuming holiness shakes the entire cosmos. That's, I think, what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Because there's coming a day when God is going to once more descend and shake not only the heavens, but also the earth. And all those who are caught clinging to their works will be left in distress. They'll be left clinging to trophies made of sand. You see, in the end, that's all our efforts to be holy in and of ourselves. That's all they are. They are sand castles. Guess how sturdy they are. And when the wave of God's holiness comes upon this, this whole cosmos, that wave is going to brush away all that cannot withstand, that cannot endure. That day of holy sifting. None of our attempts to be holy will ever be able to stand that day. But here's the good news. Because that's not what we're left with. That's not where our hope lies. Because God in Christ not only tells us what the demands are of his holiness, but in and through Christ, he meets that demand for us. This is the great contrast between Mount Sinai and then here, back in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, he contrasts it with Mount Zion. Look at it. Look at what he says. Again, remember verse 18. You have not come. You have not come to this. This is not the locus of your hope. It is not in that. But here he says in verse 22. But you have come. Here is the foundation, the root and ground of all that you believe, all of your hope. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem into innumerable angels in festal gathering. Into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Into God the judge of all. Into the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Into Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What words? Zion, of course, is almost always meant to suggest this future hope that Israel had. A future hope that was always concerned uh, uh, about the coming day when the Messiah would reign over the whole earth truly and fully as its one true king. But here, the writer sort of blends together both of these things in terms of making it, yes, it's still future, but also it's also here right now and by faith. The reign of Christ is not something that we have to wait for. It's true right now. He is ruling and reigning right now. Zion is already as good as established in him. And you've been made citizens of that holy Jerusalem, that future Zion, that future kingdom. You've been made citizens of that by faith, he says. You see, this is the awesome fact Of the gospel. This gospel of Jesus. 
Jesus for you, Jesus' life and death and resurrection on the cross, uh, uh, on your behalf. If you believe in that, you are right now, right where you sit, a member of the Holy Jerusalem. You are part of. As he says, the assembly, the church, it's that Greek word, ecclesia, it's that word for who we are here this morning. We are a gathered assembly of those of the firstborn. If you believe in Jesus, you are a part of the church of the firstborn who are joined that company of angels. As he says, in festal gathering, they are in robes that are meant to be a, a, it's, it's like a festivity, like a party. It's a joyful choir of angels. That's who you are joining by faith. Because your name has been recorded, as he says. Your name is enrolled in heaven. It's recorded, written down in unerasable ink. And you have been made righteous through the better word that Jesus speaks to us. Nothing can dislodge that. No one can make that untrue. No amount of shaking can make that untrue. And now do you see this amazing, awesome difference that because of Christ, the place of God's holiness is no longer something unapproachable that we have to stand away from. It's no longer a place of fear and trembling. Actually, as he says, it's a place to draw near. Why? Because Christ makes us holy. Christ has satisfied the law once for all. And as one of my friends said, he says, holiness is a divine gift, never a human achievement. And that's what we've come to partake of. That God in Christ gifts his holiness to those who are unholy, therefore rendering all fear mute. (laughs) As, as the writer of John, the, the, the letter of John says, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Perfect dying love casts out fear because it makes those who should tremble and quake into the state in which they don't have to anymore. Why? Because it makes unholy people holy. The perfect dying love of Christ makes sinners who should be shaking like a leaf in the wind come and approach the holiness of God with boldness. Why? Because they've been gifted God's holiness through Christ. The darkness and gloom of that place of law, that tempest and that terror, it's gone because of Christ. The law has been silenced. The demand has been met. Righteousness, all of it, is fulfilled. And now redemption is finished. As he said in a previous chapter, it's eternal redemption. Because you always have a priest standing, may, uh, 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 verifying that it's true. And accordingly, we who've been made holy by the blood of Jesus, we are among those who are unshaken. You see, Zion is that kingdom that cannot be shaken. Look at verse 28 as he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Zion is that kingdom. 
a place where all who dwell in it are holy. Because they've been made holy by Christ. And you here this morning, you are welcomed into the gates of that holy eternal Zion by one thing. By faith alone. And not faith in what you do. Faith in what he, Christ, has accomplished. It is only what God in Christ did for you on a mount called Calvary that ever fulfills what is demanded of you on a mount called Sinai. And that is where our hope is. That's where our hope is found. That's what the gospel tells us. It tells us that we're welcome into Zion. Because of what happened at Golgotha. And therefore we who stake our faith at the foot of Zion. At the foot of that mount are among those who cannot be shaken. We are a part of an unshakable kingdom. The unshakable city of the living God. And it's only by faith in Christ. That you can face that coming day without fear. You see here he's bringing the people of this Hebrew church to that same juncture. To the same juncture that I think that we are being brought here this morning. Where is your faith? And what are you holding on to? Where is your faith planted is it planted at Zion or is it, planted at, is it planted at Sinai? What are you clinging to in the end? Because there's coming a day when there's going, to be, there's going to be lots and lots more chaos. We think it's chaotic right now. It's going to get even worse. And I'm not a prophet. I just know what the Bible says. <laughs> there's lots of rumors. There's lots of things to get distracted by. There's lots of things that can make us quake in our boots. My friends, we don't have to fear the coming holiness of God onto this cosmos. Why? Because we have been made holy like he is because of Christ. That's our status. That's our position. That doesn't mean we get to be flippant with the end of all things and with the end of times. But we get to rejoice and we get to share in the good news that the way of escape out of that trembling, out of that fear, out of that shaking, out of that quaking is certain because of Jesus. When the consuming holiness of God breaks into this life, what will, be, will we be clinging to? When things begin to shake and quake. (laughs) Things might look pretty shaky right now. Things might look tenuous with who knows what happening and God knows where. (laughs) Rumors of all kinds of things coming down the pipeline. My friends, we are part of an unshakable kingdom. And no matter how tenuous... No matter how troublesome this life gets, you have been made holy by Christ. Therefore, there is no fear or trembling when that day comes. That's the good news we have. That's the the peace that Jesus gives. And this is why we should always be looking unto Jesus. Because it's easy. I know, I get it. I... You look around 
at what's happening and it can appear like chaos. And it is. Look unto Jesus. And I don't want to use this in just a silly sort of picturesque way. But it's like that moment when Peter was walking on the water. When was he able to walk on the water? When he was looking at the Savior. And when did he sink? When he was looking at the waves and the winds and the storm. That's when he sunk. My friends, look unto Jesus. He is the one who welcomes you into that kingdom of holiness because he's given it to you in the gift of himself. That's your hope. And it abides forever. Let us pray.